Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. While we talk a lot about investing on this podcast, exits are where value actually gets realised. Last year, Bohurst published a report on them, so we asked Henry Warwood to come on and talk about it. He has a lot of insights into what's going on in the data, as well as other market trends and what's happened since the report was published. It's essential listening for anyone involved in this market. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or follow the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Henry Warwood, who is Head of Research and Consultancy at Bohurst. Welcome to the podcast, Henry. Thank you for having me, Brian. Our pleasure. As usual, we'd like to start get, by getting to know a little bit more about you. Can you maybe tell us how you became involved in the world of venture capital and data? Uh, absolutely. So I work at uh, Bohurst, which is a company tracking the UK's high growth economy. So we're interested in every business in the UK, frankly, but in particular, we focus in on those ones that are growing, innovating, or have the ambition to do either or both of those things. We provide that information to VCs, accountants, lawyers, and banks, and and, and many others. I run the side of the business uh, which handles all of our bespoke analysis, so all of the research that we're doing for many of those those same clients, looking across uh, sectoral, regional trends, uh, and as well as looking at just how innovation and growth are facilitated within the UK's uh, economy. I also do a lot of work with the public sector, so working with government departments to help them understand either what technologies are emerging, what areas are either struggling or seeing strength, both sort of sectorally and, and geographically, and sort of anything that um, you know, anything that we can shed light on in the in the UK's business economy. Well, that sounds really good. And is your background more of a finance or a data background or a mixture? Uh, I have been at Bohurst for a long time now, so <laughs> my background is predominantly Bohurst. I've been, been here for getting on nine years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, prior to that, a, I had a brief stint in the wine trade, uh, which uh, I, I can talk. I can talk more about offline, Brian, if you like, over a glass. <laughs> and uh, and before, before that, uh, I was a student of classics, and uh, there are synergies between uh, the study of, of of Latin and Greek and and sort of data and databases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps one could one could carry that uh, that that thread through. But in, in other ways, you can sort of see it as very opposite sides of uh, the spectrum. So having gone from studying the uh, very ancient world and some of its technologies mm-hmm. through to uh, trying to be and trying to understand the very cutting edge of, of what's happening in, in the UK's economy. Yes, it's an interesting contrast, I suspect. I, 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 someone who likes variation in their life, I, I think I can relate to that a little bit. So the reason for getting you on today was you published a report at the end of last year about exits in the UK, and we haven't really discussed exits on the podcast, so I thought it would be good to get you on to tell us a little bit about what's happening. So you got an extensive report. I thought it might be a good idea to start on the data. You sort of mentioned that, and clearly in in the introduction, there's some stuff about what data you have and, and, and what, what caveats there are. So maybe you could expand a little bit on that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the exits that we're tracking are for companies that are in our high growth, innovative universe. Mm-hmm. So there are about 5.2 million active companies in the UK. And whilst mm-hmm. we do have a bit of data on all of them, uh, we zoom in to focus on almost 60,000 of those. And those are the 60,000 that have received uh, equity investment. And that's any amount of equity investment since since we started in 2011. Uh Uh, So any amount of uh, equity investment, friends and family round uh, onwards, so we're completely comprehensive on that. It's about 27,000 of the circa 60,000 that have used equity at some point in their growth journey. Uh We also track the companies receiving venture debt. We track the companies uh, spinning out of universities. We track the companies receiving innovation grants uh, and those companies uh, that are uh, undergoing MBOs, uh, as well as companies where we can just see that they're growing organically, so where they've become a scale-up, mm-hmm. so that they've sustained growth for a, for a period of three years. 
all of those then fall into our sort of hopper of about 60,000 businesses that, that we then throw a lot of technological as well as human resource at tracking on an ongoing basis mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to look for further growth, further innovation, all the way through to any exit event that there that there might be. We track these through a variety of mechanisms. We're out there scanning all sorts of, of news sources, looking for announcements of acquisition transactions or IPO events. But we also mm-hmm. have a lot of other other options available to us by monitoring changes in filings at companies' house and things like that mm-hmm. to try and capture you know, every possible acquisition of a company from within that 60,000 uh, cohort, particularly focusing it on, say, the companies that have received uh, equity investment mm-hmm. uh, or, or grants and then following them through. It's their primary exit is what, what we're talking about. So once the company, sort of the, once the entrepreneur has exited, then we stop tracking. We're not tracking the sort of secondary buyouts and, yeah. and beyond. So, so, so if a PE fund bought it and then sold on to another PE fund, you wouldn't track that? We don't track that sale. However, if a PE fund bought it from an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. that's still of interest. So we are interested in financial buyers as well as uh, trade buyers, but we're not interested in, say, uh, you know, a corporate buying division of another corporate where there's a bit of divestment going on mm-hmm. because that's sort of secondary and and beyond. We're interested, from, we, you know, we think about the business very much from the entrepreneur founder's perspective. And so when we say exit, we mean from from that perspective rather than uh, any any further activity further down the line. And how easy is it to get the data on exits? Because I know it's an area some people are sensitive about. So several fund managers I've spoken to have said, oh, yes, well, we've had the, this exit, but the, deta- the exact details are confidential. Um, so, so how easy is it to get all that information? So uh, it, it's it's not easy. We can we can find the announced transactions fairly fairly easily as mm-hmm. as you might imagine. So that's the existence of a transaction. Yeah, exactly. So the company yeah. or the advisors or the buyer might uh, might announce the announce the transaction, mm-hmm. and we're we're monitoring tens of thousands of sources to to find those. Mm-hmm. However, even in those cases, uh, details are lacking. Sometimes the price paid will be announced, but in a lot of cases uh, it, it won't. And that is an obstacle that is very hard to to, to over overcome. Mm-hmm. We do do some work to look through filings uh, to see whether the acquiring company in its regulatory filings announced what they pay, paid for the share capital of the company they bought and things like that. But there's a very long tail to getting that that information. It can be you know sort of 24, 36 months later, before the company actually files the accounts in which which pertain to the period in which the acquisition happened. Um, so we are looking through all of those sources, but there is a bit of a, particularly on, say, the the, the extra data about how much um, the, the company was bought for, there is a very long tail on that, uh, that mm-hmm. information. As for just the sort of the the existence of the of the transaction, so for us to be able to say how many of these deals are, are happening, like I say, we, we look at announcements, but we also can look at changes in shareholder registry. So again, a bit of a lag on that because companies are only required to disclose uh, who their shareholders are once a year. But uh, we do look through that as a as a source. So it's quite quite a complicated uh, different group of of sources that we're that we're combing through for the various pieces of information that we need. Yes, I, I, I can sympathise. As someone who spends some of his time looking through company house data, it's limited, as you say, not, sometimes a bit late, not always in, in, in the format you want. So we're speaking about exits. What do you actually mean by exit? So when you say an exit, what, what do you actually defines an exit as opposed to just something that isn't an exit? So it is the transference of a majority shareholding or um, or majority control of the um, of of the business by the founder or founders mm-hmm. to either a trade buyer or a financial buyer or to the public markets. Okay, so 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 so, so in essence, there's three kinds of exits there that you're sort of tracking. Exactly. Yeah, and. Probably most most investors will understand, but you know why are exits actually important in the private markets? Well, 
you can you can look at it from a number of different angles. I guess the the investor one is is about getting getting the returns. So that's mm-hmm. perhaps the most uh, the most easy one to, to cover. And uh, yeah, I won't teach teach your audience to to suck eggs on that front. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When I talk to uh, policymakers, for example, they're actually interested in it from a very different angle, and it's about mm-hmm. the creation of angel investors support, to support new new businesses. And that's you know the founders can become angel investors sometimes, depending on how how good an exit exit it was, and also the you know mm-hmm. the existing investors uh, get their return and will hopefully redeploy it. And obviously under under EIS, if they if they redeploy, they can offset uh, capital gains even even further than than just uh, the straightforward beginning bit of EIS. So there's there's that, uh, and there's the returning of entrepreneurs to the to the market. We do see a decent number of serial entrepreneurs. So you want to keep keep those ideas uh, coming back to market and keeping uh, new new companies getting started. Uh, you, is that something that's common? Because I, I, it's something that I. I, I hear spoken about, and some investors really like serial entrepreneurs, but I don't have a sense of how numerous they are. So we we have looked at that, uh, and we're, we're 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 tracking it actively. I guess our window starts in two thousand eleven, so mm-hmm. we've still only got quite a partial view. You know, some of those people who started in two thousand eleven are still working on business number one, but we we have seen in that period serial entrepreneurs. It's about two and a half thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, serial entrepreneurs, so people who have done one business and do another, and that's either having exited it or whilst remaining actually involved with the other one, sometimes in a significant capacity, sometimes in a reduced um, capacity. We also see uh, and track a, a smaller cohort of what I like to call Phoenix founders. Uh, these are the ones who mm-hmm. they didn't successfully exit their business, their, their, their business unfortunately mm-hmm. failed. But who have come back and actually had more success with their their second or in some cases the third and fourth businesses. So there there is you know, there are these entrepreneurs who are coming back mm-hmm. to the market uh, mm-hmm. multiple times. Yes, no, I I like that phrase Phoenix founders. I haven't heard that one before, so I shall I shall, I shall borrow that if you don't mind. Please cite me. Thank you. <laughs> I will give you appropriate credit. So I'm going to ask you about the pro for listeners. We will post a link in the show notes so that you can go and download it. We'll try and not refer too much to things that are not intuitive without looking at it, but we'll. Um, there are some graphs in it, so we'll maybe describe some broad trends and graphs uh, as we go th- go through. So, Henry, do you want to give us the, the sort of high, uh, sort of big headlines, if you like, from what your report concluded? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so. I think the key statistic and the most robust statistic on, for the reasons that, that we spoke about mm-hmm. earlier is the number of exits that, that we have tracked. And so this is either by by sale to trade or finance or through um, IPO. Mm-hmm. And we saw we saw things hit a record level in 2021. So we saw a dip in 2020 for uh, obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. We then saw more than just a correction back to the old trajectory, but but further growth. So that in 2021, a record number of uh, companies uh, were were exiting. So almost 800 companies had an exit in 2021, compared to say you know years before that when we were tracking in 2014, 220 or so exits. So it's really you know, in that in that time period, sort of four mm-hmm. fourfold growth. So really to, to quite high record record levels yeah it's something i think the trend is really interesting there because uh well i mean a couple of you highlighted the sort of dip in 2020 do you think some of what happened in 2021 was a kind of catching up on what happened in 2020 or or do you think it's an underlying trend uh sort of continuing yeah it's it's certainly that both (laughs) so um the some of those deals that caused the dip will have been knocked, sort of knocked on, if you like, mm-hmm. into into um, twenty twenty one. So that definitely would have been uh, would have been part of it. You know, these these transactions you know, can take mm-hmm. can take months or, or years in some cases, depending on the the, the scale of the the transaction. Uh, so it would have been perfectly rational in twenty twenty to just slow slow things down and see how the land lies, and that would have had 
having a uh, having a positive effect on on 2021. But I think the the growth is even even stronger than the just a sort of correction back for that. So I think it was it mm-hmm. was quite quite record numbers, and yeah, it matches what we saw in the. Uh, sort of equity fundraising uh, landscape as well, with just lots of new players entering in the market, and because of, especially actually in in exits, perhaps more more so even than um, than, than in equity fundraising in the exits market, the impact of uh, sort of worldwide governmental uh, economic interventions mm-hmm. is definitely being felt in that in that number. It left corporates with balance sheets and and basically cash levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, that meant uh, doing these transactions uh, was easier than it might otherwise have been. Yeah, yeah, and certainly I, th- I think that's something we've, we've had lengthy discussions on the podcast before about valuations, and we'll, and we'll, we'll come to those and, and the effect of those. But yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's, it seems to me that's probably one of the strong things underpinning things. Though one of the things that did intrigue me a little bit was we had a huge spike in IPOs as well. Yeah. That is very much sort of aberrant uh, ac- activity. We were a mm-hmm. huge, huge number of companies, uh, almost 50 in 2021, mm-hmm. when numbers normally per year hovered around 10, so, so, so five, five times what we what we mm-hmm. might, might expect in a normal year. And uh, we can see, uh, I'm happy, happy to share uh, some as yet unpublished stats uh, mm-hmm. with, with, with your listeners that for, for 2022, those numbers have dropped down to back, back to what, what we'd expect of, of about, about 10. And actually, as we head into 2023, uh, the, the outlook is, uh, I think we should all be chuffed if we see 10 <laughs> in, in 2023. Obviously, we've got a lot of the year ahead of us mm-hmm. and many things can change very yeah. rapidly. But I, I think you know, sort of double digits will, will be something to aim for for, for public markets from, from UK equity-backed companies. Yeah, certainly down markets as a whole generally aren't good for IPOs. And I know from my fund management days, IPOs seem to go in a very cyclical manner and very highly correlated with the strength of the equity market. I think there's there's something really interesting has happened with, with regards to the role of public markets mm-hmm. in the in the UK at least. Previously, way way back when when we started in, in 2011 mm-hmm. and looking at, at 2012, a 50 million pound plus deal was pretty extraordinary uh, event. Pretty unusual mm-hmm. would have involved a different unlikely type of investor backing the deal, very much a rare activity. So back then, if you were looking to raise that amount of money, you basically had no choice other than to go to to public markets. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. in in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, we saw those deals happening with regularity. 100 million pound plus deals in the private markets uh, were not unusual Mm -hmm. uh, anymore. Which means that the role of the public markets has has changed. You can still use them for capital mm-hmm. raising, and in in certain cases, it makes more sense as to to raise public capital than, than private capital. But broadly, I think it's is fair to say that actually the the role of the, the public markets for companies interested in IPO became more about liquidity than than finance than finance raising, which is a very interesting sort of systemic shift. However, you know, what what the future holds is quite quite hard to say. Some of those investors who came into the earlier stage markets last year and and the year before have left quickly as well. They sort of came in, got their got their fingers burnt, and left. And so we are seeing, in particular, those those huge deals drop off, which is is a big problem for some of the funds involved, big problems for some of the companies involved, but also. Mm-hmm longer term will have an impact on on IPOs again. So it, they may come back to have uh, at least a slightly increased relevance for, for capital raising mm-hmm. in the in the medium term, I think. Okay, so there's a lot in there, some of which is trends that I think anecdotally we're aware of. Certainly, when I've spoken to a lot of people about IPOs, IPOs are I think for most companies have been seen as a further fundraising event, not necessarily a source of selling shares, uh, sort of raise cash. If that has changed, that's a very interesting 
I, was, I hesitate to call it a trend because it sounds like it may not be a trend, but it, it, it's an interesting aberration. It com- comes down to sort of your motivations to, mm-hmm. to list. You know, many of the companies are still raising capital when they do uh, do do the IPO. And you know, that makes sense because actually if you want to sell investors on your propositions, in the same way as a, a private equity fund mm-hmm. might, uh, might want to put in primary as well as uh, uh, secondary capital, for the same reasons you you want to have a bit of that in the IPO you don't want to just be buying a static thing you want to be injecting mm-hmm. some new money so you're you're you're, you're investing into uh something that that's through the IPO putting itself onto an even faster growth trajectory so so certainly the the they are still raising capital but from from the entrepreneur's perspective their <laughs> IPO uh, you know, public money comes with a lot of strings in terms of the the, the regulation and all of the you know, all of the fees. Even mm-hmm. is a not not negligible thing to consider. So, if you were looking to say raise fifty million, at least up until the end of uh, towards the end of last year, you could do that uh, probably more easily in the in the private markets mm-hmm. because it came with less strings attached and because there were you know a lot of investors sniffing sniffing around that sorry I don't mean to trivialize the the process of raising that money on on public or private markets it's obviously very difficult mm-hmm. only certain companies can do it but for for the companies that you know, raising that amount of capital was realistic it did become easier i think to do it in in private markets and mm-hmm. because because it's easier to as a founder to manage you know, one private investor who has motivations of differing degrees of scrutability yeah. um <laughs> the some people did find that um find that that favorable yeah, some some of the big blow ups in in recent years wouldn't have been as big because they wouldn't have been able to get as big mm-hmm. had they gone to to public public markets so yeah. yeah one could definitely make the argument that actually a, a return to the to the role for the role of, of public markets uh, in general could could be a good thing for the industry. Yeah, there's an eternal debate about, as you say, going public comes with strings attached from a founder perspective, but from an investor perspective, generally those are quite nice strings to have, you know, because you know that there is going to be better quality reporting or or corporate governance or these sort of things that private markets perhaps have been a bit more lax about. I'm interested, you mentioned about private markets and this sort of £100 million sort of ability to do these deals, and it seems to be falling away. Anecdotally, I get very mixed messages because a lot of fund managers talk about dry powder and venture capital funds and saying, all these venture capital funds, they've, had, they've got all these big funds with these big commitments, it was raised in 2020, 2021. So there's capital out there to invest... But at the same time, people say, well, whether they could get that dry powder is uncertain. So it sounds like, from what you're seeing, the big deals happening or, or people not willing to commit to the deals in the way that perhaps they were in 2021. Yeah, I, I mean, it does get very, very anecdotal because all, all the funds are in different positions. You know, what, what you're sort of referring to there is about the the capital calls that GPs have to make yeah. to, to to LPs, and every GP has a has a different set of relationships with their with different LPs, and different LPs have different depths of pockets, different outlooks on the economy, and it's yeah, it's as subjective as as actually raising from uh, an angel investor. An angel investor might have said that you know they were good for half a million. They've given you 150k SEIS, and drawing <laughs> drawing the rest from them can be can be like drawing blood from a Blood from a stone, so it's, it's kind of kind of the same the same picture uh, there. Mm-hmm. We are seeing a drop off in those those higher end deals. To to add a bit more anecdote, I have certainly spoken to uh, some funds who are you know, taking a breather because they knew the rate at which they were putting capital out the door mm-hmm. had got had got out of hand. You know, they were they were going to. You know, their their rate of deployment was not what they had discussed initially with their, mm-hmm. with their LPs and things things had gone too quickly. So we're entering perhaps a bit of a fallow period that that people are using deliberately as a as a correction. You know, if you did too many deals and then do none, it will average out at the rate of deployment that you originally uh, that, that you originally planned. Um, and that is uh, yeah most acute at the sort of. Ten million pound plus ticket size from from what we're seeing in our in our data. 
Mm-hmm. So, so the, the the seed deals are still kind of carrying on as the sort of the one two million pound deals are carrying on as before, but it's the larger ones that are fading away. Yeah, so the seed was the sort of is the bright spot. This is actually this is not coming from our, our exits yeah. report, but from our, <laughs> our the deal report, which is also um, also available now at, at all reputable uh, websites. Um, the, we will post a link. We'll go as well. Yeah, the seed. So the seed stage was was a bit of a bright spot in, in the data. Every other stage saw a drop. Even within the seed stage, though, companies raising their very first uh, round, so you know, your, t- your typical SCIS mm-hmm. uh, rounds, we had seen that uh, slow down as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was there was a bit of people turning to bolster existing seed stage portfolio companies so sort of round number two mm. round number three is what was yeah. holding up quite quite well which which kind of makes sense in this in this period of uncertainty I've, I've sort of always said that the very earliest stage companies i've variously said sort of counter cyclical or, or just fully off cycle you mm-hmm. know, if you're yeah. investing in a company and it's high tech you know what the public markets are doing at the moment shouldn't be of relevance to you if like the technology is truly good and we'll have you know, if it works we'll have uh, you know, a commercial proposition to to go with it then you know your your investment horizon is is eight ten years hence in, in which case you should be yeah thinking about the fundamentals rather than the market however in in a period of uh, uncertainty you do want to make sure that those those companies that you've backed actually get a decent shot at it so so sort of bolstering them. It's the same thing we saw actually people people do with their portfolios in the, in the beginning of the pandemic as well. In those first few months, it was like, we can't look at anything new. We have to. Make sure existing companies survive. Exactly. Um, and so we're seeing a little, a little bit of the, 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 same, the same thing again, um, especially for seed stage companies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Returning to your exit paper, I wanted to ask you about valuations, valuation data, because it's probably the topic that has cropped up most in this podcast over the last three years. And I had two years of people going, it's very high, it's very peaky, there's a bubble going on, we're all a bit worried. Funnily enough, in the last 12 months, I've heard a bit less of that and and people perhaps felt they've sort of come down a little bit. I, I think before looking at this, I would have expected to see a very clear, similarish kind of thing happening in the exit data. And I didn't really see that. It's not the value that Average valuations have gone up, but there's no s- strong sort of bubble issue or, or, or sudden surge or, or whatever. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the data and maybe the you know sort of uh, what's happening underlying as well? Because sometimes averages and means don't necessarily reveal what's really going on. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So there there is a sort of observation bias in the in the exit data. As I, as I mentioned earlier, so uh, we have a lot of techniques for finding out about acquisitions happening, yeah. and we have some techniques for finding about the the price paid. But ultimately, there's there's no obligation, certainly on private companies buying other private companies, mm-hmm. to disclose what price they paid for that company in any of their in any of their regulatory filings. It's obviously different if the it can be different if the acquirer is a public company, and obviously you know, all of the IPO details are. are a uh, matter of public record anyway. Uh-huh. So we, we do not get the full view on prices on prices paid for for companies, particularly by by acquisition. The ones we do see therefore have this observation bias that you are probably more likely to put that information out there if you are in one degree or another chuffed with uh, <laughs> with the result. Um, so I think we do see a bit of a positive Bias in that the yeah, the stuff that the the market is likely to write to favorably mm-hmm. uh, as as news is what gets is what gets into our data for acquisition valuations. It's an interesting place for us because when we're monitoring the the earlier stage minority equity investments, that does come with a requirement to to file details at company's house from which the cal- the valuations can be calculated. So we do do all of that that work. So for for equity deals, we can see what what price uh, what price was paid, and you do see a bit of a bubble uh, in that. We know anecdotally that some of those prices then get corrected when they reach the the harsh reality of of uh, of an exit. Mm-hmm. 
but we can't we can't fully comment. Yeah, there is there is just a, there is a gap in the data to say what what truly is the average price mm-hmm. being paid for a for, yeah. for a company. Yeah, yeah. I I guess, I guess that kind of makes sense intuitively. You can imagine that if someone bought a company, okay, it, it's kind of I was going to say putting out of its misery, which might be an overstatement. But if you if a company's struggling and it, and so, someone sort of says, well, they've got interesting assets and we can pick them up for a small amount, that you're not really going to run around. With a big press release about that, are you? Exactly. That that is that is basically it, and there is there's not much we can we can do about that. If you want to fully fully bury, especially an asset sale, because that doesn't leave uh, any sort of paper trail in the in the corporate structure. If you wanted to mm-hmm. to do that, then 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 you can. So um, asset sale, you mean basically you sell the assets out of the company and leave a shell, sort of thing. Uh, exactly, which which is often often favourable for people because you don't get caught up in uh, employment regulations around the the employees of the company, if that's if that's relevant, which you would if you bought the share capital of the company. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And taking on those corporate liabilities is a, a key thing. So, so one observation I would make about valuation data is that it demonstrates very strongly the sort of power law that we we keep talking about venture capital, and and we have Graham Swickard from. Uh, syndicate room on not that long ago talking about the theory of the power law and I know he's done some work with you but I thought it was interesting to see very much in your graphs you've got a huge number on you know the bottom end and a small number at the top end but you have means that are well above medians which kind of demonstrates the power law in practice and it's a very real thing. Yeah it's 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 an interesting one that because it uh, it, it varies with people's por- portfolios, right? Mm-hmm. So we're we're, look, we're looking at the uh, the whole the whole universe, and I guess you could sort of argue that there is there is there is a power law in in that uh, as well, or just mm-hmm. um, another way of describing that. Though would just be the the rarity of the of the of the outlier acquisitions and 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 IPOs, mm-hmm. whereas the yeah the power law is more about what a person or, or funds um, portfolio is is. Uh, is composed of the the term that's probably quite helpful there is the the one that you hear it from from some VCs. Uh, yeah, they're not so much interested in in the unicorn because it's all it's all relative. You know, achieving mm-hmm. a unicorn status if you've had to put in you know five hundred million <laughs> external capital into it doesn't really mm-hmm. mean really mean that much. Uh, so they they talk about the dragons, which is the the sort of fund the the fund returner and I guess mm-hmm. that's that speaks to the the power law thing again you know you expect to have one one dragon per you don't expect to actually you hope to have mm-hmm. one 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 dragon per fund and anything above that is then from the from the funds perspective outlier performance not just in their portfolio but the fund is is has got real real outlier performance yeah I, th- I think the economics of most venture capitalists kind of almost depend on that where you're going to have what yeah you know, if you have one that returns the fund great if you have two, then that that's the happy days. So that's re- really important, I think, for most managers. The other detail you sort of split things up is B2B versus B2C. And I thought it might be worth talking about that a little bit. So I, I think part of this is there's more, more B2B than B2C, which to my naive assessment, it it it, it sort of, seemed counterintuitive to me because I would have thought lots of people would be drawn to BTC, but apparently that's not the case. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good one to to raise. My sort of wondering about it is also just in terms of acquisition strategies, B2B uh-huh. businesses acquiring another B2B business. Yeah, there, there is a, an ecosystem of, of more advisors that work on that kind of transaction. Maybe it's just a sort of history, whereas larger b2c conglomerates buying b2c brands is just i mean it, i kind of actually just describing again what the data does show that that is a rarer rarer transaction but i wonder mm-hmm. if it's sort of slightly slightly self-fulfilling in from the point of view of the strategies of, of the b of the the corporates b2b versus b2c that are that are making the um the acquisitions Mm-hmm. Something that we don't show on this uh, on this graph, and perhaps I should uh, I should do the analysis and and can follow up with your follow up with your listeners is to look at the sort of acquirer density mm-hmm. here to see how many how many players are actually 
making these uh, these acquisitions because this is looking at the acquisition event and the number of companies um, getting getting acquired, but there will be multiple acquisitions accounted for by one acquirer. Um, acquirer. So that would be that would be an interesting thing that might might speak to what I'm what I'm extemporizing as a, as a theory here about the sort of strategies of of the, the people the the businesses that would buy another B two C business. Yeah, I, I I know I've seen stats in the US about the sort of acquisition paces of the Googles and the Apples of this world, where they're not making big, big headlines or even any headlines about some of these, but they're trotting along buying a business a week in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, certainly. And we, we, we do, they're, they're accounted for in these these numbers a little bit as, as well. They are buying in the UK as well. Fewer, fewer companies, but, but certainly there are. There are some, and obviously we we have you have a number of businesses that are responsible for just a, a lot of acquisitions, like in the UK, things like Rent to Kill and and uh, sort of some some well known M and A M and A companies uh, like like that are responsible for quite a lot of these quite a lot of these deals. Mm-hmm. There are other sort of phenomena happening underneath this as as well. So some of the private equity buy and build strategies that have been quite quite. Mm-hmm. popular at the, at the moment particularly among say uh, vet outfits i think that was the sort of top one for that uh, for that strategy in mm-hmm. the past couple of years uh, so we do where those organizations have, have backed themselves through initial equity or maybe some grant money and things like that they do fall into these these numbers as well so there are there are sort of some sub strands that you can start to pull out mm-hmm. in that as well yeah is that is that really put again it's, it's something anecdotally i've heard about but it's good to hear some substance that there is actually real data, and and it's not just rumor. There's actually something going on there. Yeah, certainly we we do we do see it borne out, and actually the um, the ICAEW, uh, that's the Institute of Chartered Accountants of England and Wales, uh, their corporate finance faculty has a magazine called uh, Corporate Financier, and they a few months ago did a feature on the sort of veterinary buy buy and builds. We, uh, that prompted me to go and look away, go look into our data. And you know, not every vet finances themselves through or, or finances themselves at all, actually. Some of them some of them do just, do just bootstrap or organically or have been around for a while. Uh, but for the ones that sort of come onto our radar for that sort of growth and, and innovation, we were seeing them sort of match match the patterns that um that, that the corporate financier was was elucidating from its members. Mm-hmm. Okay, it'll be interesting to see if that's a trend that continues. So we were chatting earlier, and you mentioned something about the sort of nationality of acquirers. Do you maybe want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's the UK companies are the most prominent buyers, or UK funds mm-hmm. also uh, by number the most the most prominent buyers. But uh, there are there is quite a bit of international um, activity. We're very popular as a as a destination for for US uh, acquirers. I guess it makes sense because of the, the the shared the shared language and the sort of mutual expansion opportunities. That also reflects what we see actually on the on the equity fundraising side as well. Outside of the UK, the the top it's not the top destination. It's the top you know, the top incoming source mm-hmm. of of, yeah. of money is is from the US as well. So that carries through all the way through to the um, sort of corporate. Corporate acquirers, acquirers especially, are if they're not UK, then most likely to be US. And is that something that's been changing over time? Because my gut feeling is that there's been more capital in the US as well, and that's been looking for home. And I, I listened to some podcasts and stuff about US VCs, and they've looked into internationalised a bit more. So, have US acquirers become more prominent in recent times, or is it just in line with the general trend? Yeah, we we we've seen sort of year on year on year growth. Speaking now, especially to the the sort of earlier stage, the equity fundraising side of things, mm-hmm. certainly year on year growth, number of deals involving a US headquartered uh, fund, mm-hmm. and some of those funds are quite sort of insular in, within their domestic uh, geography, but they just sort of reach out occasionally if they've got a strong sectoral thesis, mm-hmm. and then others of those funds are sort of more actively expanding. You know, sort of internationalizing in, as an asset allocation strategy. Mm-hmm. So you you will see some funds 
actually a number of US headquartered funds have started to open London offices. And even if they don't go as far as having an office, um, there's often like a scout with, with boots on the ground. But it's sort of interesting those in those sort of three categories, if you like the ones with satellite offices or with a scout or just where actually they've got no real European presence. We're seeing growth, growth in all three of those categories. So the, uh, the UK is an attractive destination market. Certainly that that holds up until till very very recently in the basis of what we're saying in what we see in the data and what and what we hear anecdotally we talk to a number of us investors and although uh, valuations in the uk have ballooned nonetheless they've well rather because they have also ballooned in the us that mm-hmm. um we we remain comparatively good value is is something that they they do all tend to tend to mention you can get the same quality of team and technology in the UK for not as much as you would pay in the mm-hmm. in the US. Yeah, and I guess that's got to be uh, attractive to acquire, even if so, it's the danger of a culture gap. So the report you wrote goes up to the end of 2021. We've alluded a few times to what's happened since then. What have you seen in the data since the end of 2021? So 2022... I mentioned that that IPOs are, are back back to the low levels mm. uh, that we would expect. You know, IPOs remain a, a minority pursuit, mm-hmm. but looking at exits overall, and by which we then therefore mean by and large acquisitions, 2022 did see a drop from 2021. 2021 was the peak, but the drop is broadly in line with what we've actually seen in in equity investment as well. It is still the second highest. Uh, year mm-hmm. on record. Um, we are currently uh, showing about 830 uh, acquisitions in, in 2022, which is holding up pretty well. Uh, mm-hmm. That's the yearly number. If we if we look at the quarterly picture, things have, have dropped quite a bit, not as bad as they did in the, the, the pandemic. So the, the final quarter of last year, we saw 155 uh, deals, which is mm-hmm. a big drop from the sort of 220 to 130 that was the previous quarterly kind of level, mm-hmm. and way down on the quarterly peak uh, in Q1 of 290, 290 deals. Mm-hmm. But that peak was, um, as we sort of alluded to earlier, a bit of a correction on from the, from the the very low levels uh, that the, the the pandemic caused. So, I guess to sort of uh, summarize. I've got the data in front of me, but your, your <laughs> listeners, your listeners don't. To, to mm-hmm. sort of summarize the, the the trend that we're seeing is that things mm-hmm. have slowed down noticeably, mm-hmm. but uh, not to the same extent that they slowed down during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. At a quarterly view, we are still you know, well above what was happening sort of in in normal times, if you like, in in 2017 and uh, bits of, bits of 2018. Indeed, some some very early uh, data on on Q1 is actually quite quite promising, given that we're uh, at the time of recording, mm-hmm. just about two two thirds of the way the way through. Mm-hmm. We've seen 114 acquisitions this quarter, um, or already, which is yeah more more than the the, the low of, of 87 in the uh, Q2 2020, so the, the pandemic uh, mm-hmm. quarter. Caveats abound. Uh, before I, <laughs> yes, uh, early days of scrubbing data. <laughs> it's the, so the, the caveats on the data, but actually mm-hmm. broadly that means things things will track up still. Mm-hmm. You know, the more recent the data, the more likely it is to track up as we as we get to dig through more and more sources. The caveat abounds around the the, the sort of nature of these transactions and and sort of the timeliness of this as a signal. Mm-hmm. These transactions can take. Uh, a long time. There is a lot of momentum in the in the system for for these deals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great that they are still getting over the line and not being cancelled entirely in Q1. But what's perhaps more interesting to to wonder about, and we don't don't have any data, is you know, if you're a you know, head of strategy at a at a big corporate or something like that, what does the current uh, macro environment make you feel about? Sort of beginning these conversations or, mm-hmm. or starting to come up with what your acquisition strategy for the next 12, 24 months is. If that's being um, depressed, then you know, the 
we, we could be back here in a year's time, Brian, with me <laughs> me presenting much, much worse numbers or much, much better mm-hmm. uh, numbers. Yeah, um, I think there's, there's something about the timeliness and of, of these transactions. Yeah, certainly I can make arguments for both cases um, in terms of being bullish or bearish because corporate balance sheets, generally speaking, are still quite strong. And mm-hmm. if organic growth is going to become a little bit harder, which maybe you might get be getting inflation raise, raises through, but if economic growth is slow, that would generally suggest it, corporate growth will be harder to find. So maybe acquiring some of that growth might be attractive. But on the other hand, as you say, it's easy to make the bear case as well. I don't know which will prevail. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat and, and do variously talk myself into into either 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 corner on, on that mm-hmm. one. But I, I think yeah, the to get anecdotal again, I certainly talk to to enough people in these in these kinds of roles making these decisions who are bearish. So they are certainly out there. And I guess you know, uh-huh. what the market averages out as uh, is, is what we're what we're trying to get at here. Mm-hmm. But certainly you can uh, from anecdotal evidence, I probably talked to slightly more 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 bullish more bullish people who see in in depressed valuations an opportunity. Okay, well, we'll see how that pans out. Certainly, it, it's, I have been I have been wrong before. <laughs> so have I, uh, but at the very least, I had I had a guest on about six months ago who referred to uh, exits as mythical beasts, and at the very least, we've we've shown quite firmly they are not. So. That is clearly your guest was feeling it with regards to their own portfolio. <laughs> Perhaps. What I'd like to do now is turn to our favourite questions. So we'll, we'll we'll throw these at you and get your brief thoughts. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. I guess the thing that that might might be of interest to 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 your interest to your listeners is is about us us as a, a business our, mm-hmm. ourselves. Um, we do sell to. Uh, the public sector quite uh, quite a lot, and uh, you can get caught in the vicissitudes of public procurement, uh, which there have been numerous sort of policy groups and meetings to try and try and streamline the ways in which government mm-hmm. procures from 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 SMEs. Uh, but I've not I've not seen much improvement, and I guess we do sometimes lose those those procurement tenders if that's not. Uh, too acute or lamer, a lamer failure to, <laughs> to, to enumerate, but mm-hmm. um, certainly perhaps it's uh, ad- advice for your listeners to, to be mm-hmm. savvy with, with regards to bidding for, for government work. Yes, yes. Um, so usually we focus on the EIS and VC industry, but you sort of focus on the sort of gross market as a whole. What changes do you think would help that market? What would you like to see change in it? Well, I can certainly speak to the the EIS, VCT, and SEIS side of things. You know, there's very positive news in the pipeline for for SEIS with the uh, mm-hmm. looming extension, although I'm not sure that's that's actually been ratified uh, yet. Mm-hmm. So, uh, getting that ratified would be a great thing to to see. And the uh, yes, the the sort of previous. Well, Rishi's Rishi's hinting and uh, Jeremy's statement to the effect that they are pro extending SEIS and uh, VCT, sorry EIS and VCT beyond the the, the date, the long stop date of the sunset clause. That that I think is pretty needed. I, I imagine uh, preaching very much to the to the converted on this on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. So to to offer something a bit. A bit different, although probably <laughs> preaching to the converted again. Mm. Those the mooted changes to the R and D tax credit scheme should also those should not go ahead. So oh, should go oh. ahead with the with the commitment to, to EIS and VCT. But the, the changes to the R and D tax scheme are especially for the smallest early stage businesses. In, in particular, the the tax credit um, mm-hmm. I think are, are just just a bad idea and an unnecessary bit of distraction and uncertainty added into the to the mix for what seemed to the seemed like it was to the chancellor a fairly offhand thing he was he was doing i think this is really proving quite quite frustrating for a lot of small businesses mm-hmm. yeah yeah it wouldn't be the first government thing that's not been entirely thought through um at the <laughs> point of announcement 
So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and I've always asked my guests what, what books they like and is there anything they would really recommend? Well, we've been talking about the, the power law on this uh, podcast. I'm sort of slightly ashamed to admit I haven't yet finished it. I'm uh, going through it more slowly uh, than, than I than I would have liked. I mentioned in my sort of Christmas newsletter to our subscribers that I was working my way through it, and I, I still am. But I would uh, I would recommend it as a sort of overarching history mm-hmm. of kind of the a- asset class. Um, mm-hmm. It's quite quite U- quite U.S. focused, uh, so they they do view it differently as a as an asset mm-hmm. but it does speak to how, how a de- decent chunk of our industry uh, mm-hmm. works obviously we have then all of all of the peculiarities that uh, nice peculiarities I hasten to add that uh, that EIS VCT and all of the other schemes we have in introduce mm-hmm. into the into the mix yeah no I would I would second that Sebastian Maldew has done an excellent job there and Maybe you haven't quite got to. It does go a bit more international towards the end of the book because he speaks a lot about oh, what happened go. in China. And Europe doesn't get much of a mention, if I'm being fair. It meant more or less in passing, but um, it definitely does get a little bit international. So what do you wish that you knew when you start with Bohurst that you know now? That's, uh, that is a, a tricky tricky question as i mentioned been been here for nine years nine years now so you've got to got to hope that i've learned <laughs> learned a decent amount um decent amount along the way i mean there's the the obvious joke i could make that the number, the number of the companies that perhaps actually there are some companies who you know because we have information on investors we do sometimes get founders uh coming to us with their pitch decks uh, and there are there are one or two of those that i Perhaps should have scrutinised a bit uh, a bit further because I've since since seen them go on to go on to <laughs> to do to do pretty well. Perhaps mm-hmm. that's appropriate for our our podcast on on exits mm-hmm. as well. It's the the exits I missed out on. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think hindsight's always very demanding for investors, regardless of your ilk. Exactly. So, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Bohurst, where should they go? straight to our website uh, in particular we've got pages uh there's there's a blog with lots of uh, short form content on on issues and trends in the industry uh, there's also our reports pages which contains including the report that we've we've largely discussed here contains all of our long form research we we have deep dives into different sectors and geographies as as well as the sort of more the broader top level picture that, that we've been discussing here brian and you can sign up from there to to my uh, newsletter. You get my fortnightly gems of wisdom through to through to your inbox, as well as a roundup of, of all of the research that we're that we're putting out. Okay. Well, we'll post links to those in the show notes. Thank you very much for coming on today, Henry. I've really enjoyed finding out a, a bit more about the, what's going on behind the figures. So, thank you. Thank you for having me, Brian. My pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm always fascinated by data and I love getting under the hood a little bit and getting to grips with what the data really show. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you liked what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks' time.